Hello and welcome to episode two of Titanium Talk. Uh, I'm here with Brenton House. Greetings. <laughs> what time is it there? It's 5.30 in the morning here. <laughs> There's dedication for you. It's 11, 11.30 here, so uh, still morning, but uh, almost over. <laughs> cool. Hopefully you're loaded up with coffee. Well, I got my Mountain Dew. Okay, cool. My coffee substitute. <laughs> so, um, so we've got a few things to talk about. Um, I just wanted to do a quick recap from, or quick follow-up to the first episode, because we had a few comments, a few bits of feedback, which were good, mostly positive, which is nice. A few suggestions, well, all positive, but um, a few suggestions on a few things that could be done or, or would be nice, things like intro tunes and outro tunes. I'm not too sure about that, but anyway. Um, but one of the things that came up was through the whole publishing side of things. So I, I published it through iTunes, um, through iTunes Podcasts. And that obviously feeds from an XML file, which can then be fed into other podcast hosts or podcast servers. It can also be added manually. So you can just take the podcast URL and add it manually to any podcast player. We did get a comment on Twitter, which I thought would happen, which was funny because, you know, being cross-platform framework, someone said, if only put it on iTunes. Um, and the reason for that was that in the UK, Google Play, you can't put podcasts in, on Google Play from the UK for some reason. It's not available yet. So what I managed to do is I managed to VPN to Canada because I had some trouble with the American the American <laughs> VPN. So I VPN to Canada and I managed to publish it through that. So it's on Google Play and we're on iTunes. And the nice thing is once that's done, it's all fed from the XML. So as soon as the XML file updates with, with new content, all those places will get updated. So you should be able to play this on Android, iOS, or pretty much any podcast. I think you can even go to the website URL, titaniumtalk.fm. And from there, you can just play it in the browser anyway. So... So there's a few things to cover. Um, we've got some TI news to cover, just talk about Android O. One thing I wanted to mention, which is not Titanium related, but was tweeted about this week, is backups. And a story which I'll put in the... in the. Did you see this, the, the backup story? I, I did. I saw that someone lost all their stuff, trying to do a, <laughs> a revert. Yeah, so basically, from what I understand, this guy was using... I mean, this is not anything to do with Titanium. It's just a thing I want to mention as a developer the importance of backups and, and source control. So this stuff is only as good as the person using it. The, the weakest link in all this is the human being. If you don't set your stuff up properly, <laughs> if you don't commit your code, if you don't have these backup solutions in place, then you are the flaw. You are the, the broken link and, and it's all going to go badly wrong. It reminds me of a story years ago when my dad had virus scanning on his Windows laptop and we'd set, he'd set it all up or I'd set it up for him. And then, and it was McAfee, I think it was at the time. And I went down to see him and he, his machine was riddled, absolutely riddled. I didn't believe him. He said his icons were moving around the screen when he tried to touch them and, and they were, I couldn't believe it. And I said, have you been doing the updates? And he says, yes. And what he'd been doing is downloading the updates. He downloaded the files. So he had literally months worth of update files, but they weren't being applied because at the time it wasn't auto applying the rules. So, he, you know, he was still running the rules from a year ago when it was first set up. So the software was at fault in, in some ways, but also he just wasn't aware of what he was supposed to do. Um, now, in this story, this guy was developing for three months using um, set up a Git repo. He's been doing loads of not commits even. He's just been writing code. So he's got all of his changes still sitting there as uncommitted changes. <laughs> he tries playing with Visual Studio Code. I'm think, I think he might have been on a Mac, uh, but it doesn't really matter. So he starts playing with Visual Studio Code. And the criticism was at the time that Visual Studio Code's terminology and some of its alerts was a bit ambiguous. And basically it came up with something while he was messing around to say discard changes, which he just thought meant, you know, his current file or whatever. Uh, and what he actually did was messing around with the Git integration. He discarded all of his local changes. So all of his uncommitted work was immediately removed and deleted. To make it worse, he didn't have any backup system in place whatsoever. So, which is to me completely terrible if, you, if you're running a Mac anyway, because, you know, any USB device you plug in automatically asks if it wants to be a time machine. And it's just right. You have a you have a lot of options there. Yeah, it makes it easy. Exactly, and and not and not even if you want to do that. There's there's cloud solutions. You know, there's Backblaze and things that that take the human out of it. You know, they run in the background. They're automatically just syncing. My Backblaze is just syncing my stuff locally, you know, remotely to the cloud. You know, it's all taken care of. But basically, he lost all his work, and it's a terrible, you know, terrible thing to go through. Lots of people saying the software was at fault because it should have said this and should have said that. Yes, you know, it was an ambiguous statement. A lot of these things in software is ambiguous in terms of how this stuff works. But at the end of the day, you know, you've got to be, if you're going to be using source control, you've got to be not even committing because committing only commits it locally. You've got to be syncing and pushing those changes up to the server, running some sort of backup policy. 
Um, I mean, what do you what do you do? What have you got running? Time Machine and yeah, I mean, I have various USB. I have piles of USB drives everywhere. It seems like, and you know, too, once you start having kids, too, you have lots of pictures and videos, and yeah. you want to make sure you're not going to lose all those. So, like, there's so many backup services like Google and Amazon that have a lot of free levels, and and you know, with Git too, if you're using Git, there's so many different. You can have private re- repos out there, so. Yeah, it doesn't make sense that you're not, you wouldn't be pushing it out somewhere. Exactly. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, because I guess, you know, when I might be working on a new project and a new repo where I might, I've got a script that sort of sets the app up and creates a new repo, but it doesn't do anything remotely. So initially, I'm just working locally. And then what I'll tend to do is set up a, either a GitHub or a Bitbucket account and then sync that. But it might take me a few hours or even a few days to do that initially because I'm just busy doing stuff. So my sort of backup policy is I've got my time machines running locally. I've got a couple of SSDs that run that do alternating backups. And the only reason I do that is because I used to use uh, Western Digital hard drives and they've worked for a while, probably about a year. And then I'd start (laughs) getting errors uh, and it would just say, you know, you know how long it takes for that initial time machine backup. You know, it can, it can be an all nighter and it would just say, um, you know, there's errors on the disk and I'd have to basically wipe it and, and restart. And I did that a couple of times and then it eventually did it again. And I just thought, stuff this. So I went with SSDs, which are more expensive, but as I... as I th- They last longer. Well, yeah. And as I see it, this is my business. You know, this is my work. If I lose my machine for three days, that's really affects me. So at least I can... I've got two backups up to date, you know, pretty much in the last hour or so. And then I use Backblaze, which backs up in the background anything that's changed, which is all incremental. It does that initial backup, um, and then it's all incremental. And on my iMac, I've got, because like you, I've got photos and stuff, and I've got obviously photos on my MacBook Pro as well. Um, so they're obviously in iCloud, but I do back those. I do back the library up, and I back that stuff up as well to, to CrashPlan. But CrashPlan is closing, apparently, the consumer version next year. Um, so I'll switch to Backblaze or something like that. But, you know, it's... I guess my point is for the cost of this stuff, you know, it's like five bucks a month or something from Backblaze. It's automatic. It's one click install. It's all set up. It's ready to go. There's just no reason why you can't have a good backup policy in place, you know? Yeah. yeah. You'll wish you'd spent $5 <laughs> if something bad happens. I know I've had like, I had a four terabyte drive. My dog walked by and knocked the drive over. It was staying up vertically and I lost so much. <laughs> I think I was crying. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, I remember years ago, you know, when we had um, the sort of first version of our business, and we had an office, and we had Windows machines, and I had this sort of classic backup system with a tape drive, and we'd rotate the tapes and stick them in a fireproof safe, and and all that sort of thing. Nowadays, that's just you know, you just it's just no point doing that nowadays with cloud stuff. Uh, but but still, even even with Time Machine, it's very easy to use local Time Machine drives and not think about what happens if your house burns down, what happens if your office burns down, what happens if they get stolen or you know whatever damaged so just having that sort of local backup you know my my time machines are my instant recovery i can i can go and get another laptop i can get a time machine or i can just plug a time machine into a spare machine and just boot it you know and i've i can be up and running within an hour sort of thing Um, if i go and buy another machine i can be up and running probably in say three hours when it restores it but the cloud stuff is obviously more hassle i probably have to set up a uh, if I lost everything else, I'd have to set up a new machine, you know, install Backblaze, restore from Backblaze. I think you can order a drive from them as well, but that's going to take a bit longer to sort out. But I've still got all my stuff there. So um, it's it's sort of belt and braces. And then obviously there's people that use Dropbox. I use Dropbox for certain things. And you can even put your what documents and, and desktop in the cloud now with Mac OS. So there's just so many options. People talk about them doing like a cloud version of Time Machine, Apple doing a cloud Time Machine, but that that's pretty much what that is. If you put everything in your documents and your desktop and you, you turn that option on, you're basically using your iCloud account as a as a remote Time Machine, which is pretty cool. Definitely worth it. Okay, let's talk about some mobile stuff. I don't have a huge amount of info on Android O other than what I've I've just read from the website, but Android Android Oreo has been announced. From what <laughs> from what I've read, the main things are performance. I don't know if you've read much up on it, but it just seems to be, you know, stuff runs faster. It's uh, snappier in terms of, you know, the way it runs. But but other than that, I'm not sure about any major new features. Yeah, I I saw a list of features. Uh, nothing really jumped out at me as, like, this is a wow feature. Yeah, picture in picture and uh, stuff like, like that. Like, yeah, yeah, general, uh, yeah, we change our settings a little bit. Uh, we, we're doing things faster now. Yeah, exactly. What do you target when you're doing stuff with, with Android currently? I do sort of 4.4 and above. What are you looking at? Yeah, I think it was it 
23, at least four, um, 4.4, yeah. if not, if not a little bit higher. Sometimes I guess it depends on the app and your, your audience. Sometimes that'll depend on the client as well. Like who their target audience is. Yep. Cause you want to make sure you're not excluding anybody that's important to them. Who? <laughs> Exactly. I mean, I'm trying to, I'd like to be able to push it up higher. You know, it, it seems ridiculous that we're sort of targeting 4.4 as a minimum when, you know, eight is coming out. Although that's the thing with Android, when, right. when they say these things, I, I saw a, a post in, it was a comment in a, in a Jira ticket about um, an Android issue in titanium and saying, you know, we're on, we're on Android eight now. And it's like, well, we're not, um, you know, it's an, it's obviously an issue that needs to be fixed, but we're not on Android eight and we're not going to be on it for a while based on the way these things roll out. But it does seem completely insane to be targeting 4.4 when Android 8 is around the corner, especially with iOS. You know, typically with iOS, I would go back two versions. Um, I mean, I tempted to sort of say 11 and 10 is my supporting ones when 11 comes out. But I know some people go back to it, to even eight iOS 8 uh, devices. Um, that was a conversation. Yeah, I try to do N and N minus one kind of for iOS. The adoption rate is really high, but yeah. There's always going to be some people that are going to be on the older, yeah, um, older devices. Exactly. I mean, like you say, with Android, it's difficult to. You've got to get the audience right, and four point four still has a big, a big audience. I think it's 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 getting better, and, and yeah. five is getting better. But um, yeah, it's a it's a big issue. Um, other news: Titanium news this week. We've got uh, TI Cloud library has been made open source, so people can get hold of the source code for that and contribute. Um, Ti, so it's a the iCloud. That's right. So it, le- it exactly lets you lets you save data to iCloud and on iOS, which is pretty cool. Um, so ni- it n- is. nice to see that available. So we can we can start messing with that if we need to or updating it. Um, there was also a new. V- so it's kind of like the. I mean, talking about backups, that's kind of like your basically your titanium properties. I mean, yeah. the interface look is really similar, but yeah, it's going to be storing it in the cloud. So I mean, now this is for your data for your user, but then it's going to be it's going to be shared across um, every app install that the person might have. So it's just a it's a nice option. It's nice that they open source that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I wrote an app for the kids last year, which I need to go. Well, probably yeah, it was last year. I need to go back over. It was like a little word tin. It was called Word Tin, but it was basically helping them read. Um, so at school, they get these little tins, literally these little tins with loads of words cut up, and they go through them. And there's different color words for different um, ways of reading them. Um, so, you know, whether you sound out the letters or whatever. And uh, we wrote a little app. I wrote this little iPad app that basically, because we were, we were literally having these charts of words that they had to read. So I just wrote an app where you could sort of key in all the words, comma separated, and then it would come up with the word just on the screen in big font. And then you can change the font to make it cursive. You can change the color to make it more interesting. And then you can do a tick or a cross or whatever if they get the word right or wrong and it goes to the end of the list. Um, but everything was made locally. So it was all just a local, I was just using local storage. So I might plug that in and, and start using iCloud to sort of sync the data um, so that you can switch to a phone or something and it can pick up where it left off and things like that. It'd be quite nice. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, another 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 update this week was um, new versions of the TI barcode, so uh, the accelerator module. So both of these are accelerator modules. TI barcode was released to fix some rotational issues um, where if you had a device or an app that was configured to run in portrait and then you, you started the barcode reader up, if you rotated it, it would rotate as well. Uh, but that's been fixed. Um, I'm using that. I've used that quite a few times. I'm using it in an app at the moment, um, 360 pano photo viewing app that uses um, barcode uh, to scan QRs. Which look, works really well. I mean, yeah, it's very, very fast. Very fast. I mean, it's, I don't know if you have you done any barcode scanning. You know, when you end up point, you, the sort of camera fires up. And if the barcode, if the QR code is sort of on the screen or something, it will open and close instantly. It's so fast. <laughs> it is very, I've, yeah, I've used um, older versions of the TI barcode and I've used some of the different commercial ones out there, like Scandit. Yeah. Um, I've heard of and that some one. of the others for doing, that has a wider range of barcodes they'll accept, but the TI barcode, especially for some of the basic barcodes, uh, it works really nice. Have you seen the iOS 11 scanning, barcode scanning in the camera? Uh, that, I, I'm so glad they finally have that feature yeah, in there. Nice. That is really nice. I mean, it's nice for developers, but it's also nice for people that are writing apps in general because always before, I know QR codes haven't aren't huge 
but every time someone would have a QR code, you got like, uh, yeah, make sure you have an app that can scan the QR code. And trying to explain that sometimes to a non-technical person, you're like, what? Where, yeah. where do I get that? And yeah, so you just lost somebody. So that's nice. That'll just be built in. And apparently, they're going to be there's going to be Wi-Fi configs that could be done with iOS 11, so you'll be able to sort of scan a barcode and it will you know configure itself. I'm, I've used it. I've got the beta installed, so I've used it a couple of times. I was messing around with Tie Shadow last week. Um, to try and add a barcode feature so that it would, you know, you could point the barcode from a the tie shadow app on the phone and it would launch the, you know, launch to that IP address and port. So it would just connect to that app straight away. And that was quite fairly straightforward. I've, I've, I've got some more work to do on it, but that was fairly straightforward just using TI barcode. Uh, but I was testing, That's I was nice. also testing it with, with the camera. You know, I was just taking a picture just to see what the, and it just comes up at the top. So when you, when you go into the camera and you look at a QR code in iOS 11, you get this little sort of, drop down at the top this little sort of slide down almost like a toast notification pops up saying you know if it's an http link or you know open this in safari or whatever you just click it and, and it goes it's pretty neat I like it yeah it definitely makes it easier so that's just integrated i think a lot does android or some versions have something integrated in their camera already don't they so that's nice uh now what was the other item we had another item on it was this one you added the refreshed actually so- the so i know okay. they've They've announced um, the new naming. Yeah. Uh, so it, I know when X-Way got acquired Absolutor, I mean, there was some confusion out there. What do we start calling stuff? But they've come out now with a new name. So you can, as far as like the the product itself, like th- basically if you put X-Way and Absolutor in front of something, there's a good chance you're going to get it right. Um but I can bring up the the list of <laughs> they have a whole list of all their products. Uh, I think there's only a couple that aren't on there. I mean, smaller things like Live View or something. Yeah. But um, it's nice that they have a consistent naming now. Um, it might be a mouthful sometimes, uh, but it's consistent, so that's nice that they published that. Yeah, I mean, there are other there's other purchases out there that have happened with companies that have merged. I'm trying to think of a good one now. Like, uh, is it OpenShift, Red Hat OpenShift? Is that one? Where they've, they've merged the two names together. You know, they just put the two names together to encompass that product. And it is a difficult one because obviously Axway are known for what they do. And then oh, and the Accelerator brand and the Titanium brand is, is strong in terms of understanding what that product's about. Um, plus the link with things like, you know, Alloy, it's not that, you know, it's, there was, I saw some people going, oh my God, this is a mouthful and all this sort of stuff. And it's like, well, it's not that bad. <laughs> um, you know, Axway is the main company. They've acquired Accelerator. So Axway Accelerator makes sense because you still want to get that brand in front of people and, you know, help them understand that Accelerator is still there. Um, and, you know, things like Titanium. Titanium is still Titanium. You can still call it Titanium. It's still Titanium SDK. Alloy is still Alloy. Uh, but the sort of longer name is Axway Titanium. And I think it was the names everybody was using already. Yeah. So, um, and both names have a lot of um, history to them. Uh, Accelerator with mobile and Axway with API, on the API side. And because you can use both, especially if you're on the mobile side, you're going to be a lot of times using, interfacing with a lot of the API stuff that came from Axway. Uh, it it really just just makes sense. Exactly. Um, ROdB uh, was renamed to API Builder, which is a much better name because because the, the MBAS is a mobile backend service. Yes. Yeah. Um, so they have yeah. That was it. The API runtime service and the mobile backend service. So yeah, it kind of the name says what it does. Exactly. Yeah. Where it was ROdB is like oh okay, it's a database. When in fact it could do all that automatically, so API Builder makes much sense because it is doing exactly what it says on the tin. Okay, um, anything else you want to talk about with news? I don't think there. There's a couple little things, um, but uh, yeah, lots of. I mean, several people are open sourcing, doing different things, contributing. It seems like a lot um, lately, especially a lot of people are um, contributing to some open source projects, and I think that's really great it's helping bring about some projects that maybe have been sitting idle for a while and kind of bring some new life to them so yeah i think that's great too yeah and it's it is you know it can be difficult to do some of this stuff sometimes to jump into it i know that when i was playing with tai shadow last week i mean tai shadow is a is a complicated beast in terms of what it's doing it's doing some really cool stuff there's lots of aspects to it um and when you're going through 
it can be quite overwhelming, you know, when you sort of fork these repos and start looking through the code and thinking, oh my God, you know, I don't know what, I don't know what this is doing, basically, you know, navigating all these different files. But, you know, I soon sort of got the sort of hang of what it was doing in terms of what the subfolder was for the app that was building the app and, uh, you know, which bits I had to, to, to try and mess around with to mess around with the, the CLI and things. Um, and, you know, small little changes, you know, I just, I did, I spent probably a couple of hours just messing around with it to sort of try and do the QR code generation stuff and found a QR code library, uh, managed to do that, got it working. Now it's a case of that classic open source thing of I've just got to tidy things up and make sure things work and test stuff and make sure the code's nice. And I've tested all the different sort of, uh, routes to make sure everything works before I can uh, do a pull request. Um, but definitely, you know, people out there, Try and get involved, you know, if, you, if you're seeing little things that can be fixed. I mean, if you look at some of these pull requests in some of these repos, like, for example, the TI barcode repo, if you look at the latest release and look at the files that have changed, there's a couple of lines of code that have changed. Um, you know, small line, a small change to a, to a repo and a pull request can make a big difference in terms of adding a new feature or fixing a bug or something like that. It can, and I mean, I think... Some of those changes came from the community yeah, as well, yeah. even the TI barcode. So that's nice. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's also important. I mean, there was, there was a comment. I won't name people, but there was a comment um, to AppSea Dev and Accelerator account this week about making a better version of Alloy. You know, can we, can we have a better version of Alloy that, that has things like tools <laughs> like, uh, that, uh, if I spell it right, I'll have to put a link to this, Trimethyl, um, which is a framework that's been built on top of Alloy. Um, to add sort of some some common JS libraries that could be included and some user interface stuff to make things a bit easier to develop. And that's cool. You know, I love that sort of stuff. I mean, I write that sort of stuff. So I, I do love those sort of extensions and add-ons. But, you know, the, the sort of subject of can we have a better version of Alloy? Well, it's it's not... A, What's better for one person may not be better for everyone. Exactly. Too. Exactly. And it's not as simple as saying that. You know, the reason tools like Trimethyl and the stuff I write exist is because we can build it on top of Alloy easily. Um, there's definitely stuff that could be done in the Alloy core, but guess what? It's open source. So, you know, if I wanted to put some of that stuff I wrote with that Alloy, Alloy X library to sort of clean up controllers, there's no reason why I can't just go into the source and you know, fork it and try and make those changes directly and submit a pull request. Whether it's accepted or not is another thing, but I could do that. So I think it's, I think it's more a case of, of looking at what some of the features are that people want and whether they can be uh, added through extensions, added through extra frameworks, added through little libraries, or added as far, you know, in terms of a, a pull request into the Alloy repo itself. Um, I'm up for that sort of stuff. You know, I enjoy doing that sort of stuff. Yeah, some of the, I mean, I've done the same thing before. I, I submitted PRs to Alloy. I would, and then for a while, I tried to like run my own fork of it of things that mm. really didn't make sense to go into Alloy. And but I noticed there's a PR in progress right now on Alloy as a result of like comments in the community about actually adding extensibility points into Alloy, which that makes sense yeah. because that makes it possible to put. Uh, more things on top of Alloy make it easier to integrate with it. And yeah, you're, the block you may be putting on may not be for everyone, but there may be a, a following and you may want to be able to do that. So having the extensibility points, that's awesome. Yeah, there's already a lot of them in there, but I mean, having even more, that's even better. Yeah, I mean, I, I the stuff I like playing around with is stuff like tags, you know, creating my own tags, creating tag extensions overriding existing methods you know doing the hacks around backbone and things like that i guess you know there's some stuff that i'd like to see built in uh one of the simplest things i'd like to have is just importing capability to import tss files um so i could have you know a a template tss file that's like a uh, whether it's a material design or a um a reset tss that sort of resets all the properties of of standard you know standard controls but i'd I, it would be cool if i could have that outside the project you know i could have that in another folder and i could just have a sort of at import and put that file path in and then when the app's built it will import that file in and, and use that file that would be really cool um i think i'm not totally sure but i think some of that that could actually be done using the alloy jmk file uh, but if there are these extensibility points that are being put in that would be a really cool thing to be able to do um, or just a you know a feature in the core because um, there's a few times where I've come across that sort of thing where it's you know you know when you've built an app and you've sort of built some nice controls and you've got some nice styles and then you think you want to reuse some of that in another project yes you could do it as a you could do it as an app TSS or whatever and just use the bits you want and not use the other stuff 
uh, or just copy and paste it, but it would be nice to have that as a sort of in my app TSS or whatever, I want to do an import from this file path uh, or even from a remote gist or something, you know, or a remote file. And it will literally at build time, just bring it down, merge it in and use it. That would be really neat. That would be. So, yeah. Yeah, that sort of stuff's cool. That'd be neat. Um, go ahead and build that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had, I, I, it's one of those things I have I have sort of started messing with to sort of see if I could do it. And then I sort of, it's it's again, it's a bit like the Thai Shadow stuff. You start looking at code and looking at how JM, the JMK files work and everything and think, oh my God, this is too complicated. Um, and then you sort of give up. But I, I think I might have a look at that again because that would be quite fun. Um, one of the other things that came up, somebody was asking, because we asked for some feedback and, and well, not just feedback, but you know, what topics do you want to talk about? Um, a few things came up. So one of them was to talk about Hyperloop. And the main thing was to talk about how it differs from other solutions um, or other other you know mobile cross-platform JavaScript type solutions. So in a nutshell, I mean, the big difference with Hyperloop is the fact that you're coding in JavaScript. You know, with other solutions out there like NativeScript, like React Native, you can extend them with native code. You can um, React Native, you, uh, you can use different IDEs, but one of the ways of developing with it is using Xcode. So you're actually coding with Xcode. You're doing your JavaScript in Xcode, et cetera, which means you can just, you know, drop a class in, drop a, a, a framework in and start working with it. But you're writing native code. You're writing Objective-C or Swift. And obviously with Java, uh, with Android, you're writing Java. And it's a similar story with native script. You can integrate that stuff directly, but you're writing almost like a module, like we, like we used to do in Titanium. It's a bit easier. Uh, the build process and the writing process is a bit easier than traditional modules in Titanium, but it's a similar process. The difference with Hyperloop is that you're doing, you're, you're accessing those that raw SDK behind the scenes, but you're doing it with JavaScript. You're not using, you don't have to use Objective-C. You don't have to use Swift. You can literally go straight down and access a CocoaPod that you've added or you know, framework, whatever, directly using JavaScript code. That's the difference. There is the capability to put Swift classes in and Objective-C classes and Java classes into your project and the Hyperloop demos, Hyperloop examples. Repo has got an example of that. I was playing around last week with the material design for iOS from uh, Google, yep. which I'd messed around with before. And again, it was one of those things that you start playing with and then it, I feel like, oh, I don't understand this and, and I left it. Then I went back to it and it helped by under, trying to understand how Hyperloop works. So it creates this metadatabase of, of JavaScript files that map to the underlying SDK through the Hyperloop. So you can actually go into the, the, the metadatabase that it generates and see how it's generated the JavaScript. And that actually helped me with this because one of the things I was doing was just trying to work out, I was trying to create a floating button um, using this material library. So it was a CocoaPod, added in the configuration for that, installs it and everything. Um, and then I started writing code and it was just a couple of constants that were giving me problems about how to reference these constants. Because um, trying to, you know, it's it's an interesting thing trying to get your head around the JavaScript way of writing sort of um, Xcode code. How it, uh, it maps over. Exactly. So the one thing that really helped me was looking at the, the actual raw uh, instructions for all the material library was showing me all the Swift code and Objective-C code. It's like, great. And then I just had a quick glance through the metadatabase and found the generated code. And so I could immediately see where the constants were and could see which class they were in or which object they were in. So I knew that what I had to do was require the top level um, component for the material library to be able to get the constants. And that really helped me just write that piece of code. And once I cracked that, and also reading up from uh, the guide, the intro guide that Accelerator have got on Hyperloop, which you know doesn't cover every single detail, but it gives you the basics. It talks about constants. It talks about how to instantiate a class. Um, you know, how to create the class reference and then how to instantiate it into an object. Um, it talks about how to require for constants and variables and things like that. So once I'd got my head around that and then checked out the metadatabase and see how it worked, then I cracked it and it was really easy to work out, you know, how it was actually working. So I understood, first of all, I understood how I was getting certain things wrong the first time I tried to use it. So I was trying to create a button that was a round button, but I was trying to use CG rect to do a, um, a square. Oh, you know, I was trying to do a, a, an X, Y width and height to generate a circle. Um, which it wasn't expecting. It's expecting a radius set for me to set a radius. And as soon as I saw that in the in the instructions in the material design, I knew how to do it because I knew I could do a set radius. Um, and then it was really straightforward. So I managed to get something working uh, pretty quickly with very little code. Um, but that's the key difference. You know, you're writing code in JavaScript. You're not having to jump into Xcode or jump into Objective-C or uh, Swift. Yeah, the the metabase thing that you hit on, the, that's a secret gem and in there they're like yeah open up that fi file and you're gonna see all kinds of stuff that 
is really going to make things a lot easier exactly. for you when you're doing Hyperloop. Yeah, I mean, it's helping with things like uh, look into the files to see what constants are called, called, but it's also just helping to understand how the files are being referenced so you know you're you know requiring the right thing. Um, and I believe that I believe the whole meta database is also tied up to why LiveView isn't supported yet, um, because it's a difficult thing to do because the meta database is being generated at build time. So um, you know, if you build a version of your app and then you want to now add in a CocoaPod or add in a, a you know a new library or whatever, uh, then the meta database has to be regenerated. So that's only done at build time at the moment, and obviously that would need to be um, dealt with in terms of LiveView to get that working. Yeah, there's a lot of optimization things that they're doing so that they're only generating what you need to build your current app. So it analyzes and, and finds those classes that it needs to create maps for. So it helps you. It keeps yeah. your, your file size down and um, and your build time down as well. But it's nice, too, that you highlight on you don't have to write it in native because although you don't have to, you can use all the JavaScript um, to access all your native classes. You can easily, you can drop in a Swift file, you can drop in um, Objective-C, you can drop in a JAR file. Uh, like you said, you could use CocoaPods. You have so many different options with Hyperloop. They're just not limiting you and exposing all the JavaScript way of doing things as well. So no matter how you go about doing it, um, you can get to that native code somewhere. It makes it really easy to be able to use a lot of the third-party libraries that are out there now that didn't necessarily have access to. Yeah, and you can, you know, you can write these modules so that you can put this stuff into a little module that can be required, but you can also write the code directly with your JavaScript. You know, you can write it, write it in a controller. Um, so just alongside your normal titanium code, you've got a block of code that's bringing Hyperloop in and doing Hyperloop stuff um, to create a quick button or something. I know, that's pretty cool to see it in the same file. You'll be working in the same file and you'll see your JavaScript native code along with your other code. It's pretty cool. Exactly. And you get those little scream out moments where you're sort of messing around and thinking, okay, I don't think this is going to work because I don't think I've read this properly, but I'm just going to hack this and try it. And then you hit the build button and it comes up and suddenly the button comes up and you <laughs> click it and you click it and it says, you know, clicked and you're like, wow, I did it. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's really cool. It, I mean, it's just the simple, it's the stupidest thing. You know, you've just, okay, you've just done something. You create a button and put it on a view and we've been able to do that for years, but it was, you know, it was the way I did it that was different. Uh, unit testing is a good one. So this is another one that came up in the list. I don't know how much unit testing you've done, so I might let you talk about this because I haven't done a lot. So, yeah, most of my background pre-mobile is .NET. So, yeah, I use NUnit as well. And uh, we'd have yeah, suites of tests where we'd have hundreds and hundreds of tests that would run. And so, yeah, when I came over to mobile, I started looking into what the testing options were. So there's a couple different ways of doing unit tests with, um, or a few different ways of doing unit tests with Titanium. You can do it outside the app. So you're accessing, you're checking stuff without the app actually running. There's tests that you can run inside the app. So your app is running either in a simulator or something like that. And you're checking code. So say you have a flag. So you're running in a like a debug mode. And you, you're going to run your mocha test and there's that way as well. And there's a couple different frameworks and I'll, I'll look up those links and, uh, post them as well. But then there's, I mean, you get into automated tests as well mm. using things like Appium and Accelerator test where you can automate what tests are run and kind of integrate those with Jenkins or wherever you're. Uh, your system happens to be for automating everything and kind of get those results out there. But it can be like, no matter what your language, no matter what, whether you're doing for mobile or backend or anything, yeah, you're only as good as the tests that are actually written. And you have to be careful sometimes too. Uh, on projects I've gotten, now this would probably be more difficult to do in mobile, but on the tests that you have like hundreds of tests, you make one change sometimes and you will spend more time going and getting all your tests working again than you would, than you did actually fixing the problem. So yeah. you have to make sure there's a good balance between not going overboard with making your tests too fragile that you make one change and you're going to spend a lot of time trying to get all these tests to pass and having enough tests that actually show that your stuff your features actually work. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've done some stuff where 
Um, I've sort of done unit testing for some apps when I've written some API helpers where I'm not really using a, t- a, a proper framework to do it, but I've sort of written the bakes, basics of a test. Um, I've just written it in the app essentially as a sort of piece of code that I can run in dev mode. Um, and so the sort of example with that was I was writing a chat application or um, a chat helper, API helper for a chat application using a remote API. And so my my sort of routine piece of testing was to say, right, can I get a list of chats? Can I get the first chat in the list? Can I get the user ID of that person? Can I send them a message? Can I send a message back? Can I delete that person and then test if the chat's still there and all the sort of things like that to make sure nothing broke? Um, now, I could have put that into a you know proper unit testing um, framework, uh, but I just I didn't because it was just focused on that one little API helper. But that's probably, if I did use unit testing more, that's probably where I'd be using it. It'll be an API stuff. I don't think I'd do... I don't think I'd do much stuff in the app itself in terms of user interface stuff or, you know, automation in terms of, you know, moving between screens. It would be more making sure that the API stuff works because, you know, the number of times you're working on an app and you're trying to hit something and you're getting an error or a login's not working or something and then you find out the API's broken. <laughs> you know, whereas when the app fires up, you could run a quick unit test, you know, series of unit tests to say, right, test the API. Uh, okay, so you know API's working and you can create a user, you can delete a user, you can fetch a user, you can change a user, blah, blah, blah. Then you know the basics of your functionality of your API's working, you can crack on. Uh, that's probably where I'd focus on it. Um, I don't think I would do some of these, you know, screen, rec- not screen recording, but you know what I mean? Like UE recording um, tests that go through and pretend to press buttons and things. Right. I, and I think, I think a, a bigger... If you're going to spend some time doing creating tests for anything, the test is actually what you either write down in paper, you put down in the email, you put in a spreadsheet, however you do it. Mm. The test is defining what's supposed to happen or what you're going to do and what's supposed to happen. Someone can pick that up and they can run it manually. So it would be a manual test. Yeah. You can automate that. You can put it in a unit test, but until you know what the app is supposed to do, um, you can't. You can't do, you can't automate anything. You can't create unit tests for things that you haven't defined. So, I mean, going back to what like in last episode we were talking about what you do when you're creating an app, you really have to define what's going to happen when I click this button. And once you define that, creating any kind of test or a manual test or unit test or anything else is going to become a lot easier. Yeah, and also understanding what external influences there are. So, you know, if you've got a application that, okay, I've got a profile or something within my application, um, and that's me, and the assumption is that I'm in control of that. So I'm going to be in my app. I'm going to go to my Twitter app. I'm going to go to my profile. I'm going to edit my profile. Now, you know, that's fine. But what happens if I'm uh, someone's modifying my account online? You know, maybe there's a web, maybe there's an admin CMS where someone's, uh, I've I've requested a change or something, or I've I've done something, and then they're trying to change it. How does that manifest itself in the app? Is there a clash? Does it get overridden? Is it instantly updated? You know, it's understanding those external influences as well, because otherwise your testing is just focused on you know one point, um, that single point of failure, which is the app itself and the user who's logged into it, and not looking at what happens when these external things can happen that the user doesn't necessarily do themselves in the app, and how that reflects. Yeah. And if you are testing any kind of APIs or anything, I definitely recommend Postman uh, is the best tool out there for um, testing, writing, writing tests. Uh, you can write tests, but you can also just use it to um, basically document what your APIs are, what you're going to be using in your app. And the nice part of it, the plus is that you can automate it and run it and you can, well, run all these checks, make sure all my APIs are, hey, when I create a user, can I get a, when I make the call to get user, is the user there? But uh, it's nice to be able to hand over to someone who's implementing that so yeah. that they can look at where all these calls are, uh, where are the parameters, uh, what security is involved with all these. So it, it's a really really nice tool yeah those sorts of things i love i mean I, I when i have to do apis and i use apis i do a lot of testing whether it's using tools like that or tools like pour or something to do those data requests from the api without touching any code first you know i want to make sure that i can create a user i want to make sure i can get a user back i want to make sure there's no you know i don't want to be wasting time 
because I've done it before and fallen into that trap where you're going round and round wondering why your code's not working. And it's because the API has a different name for that property or something like that. And it's also a really interesting one about um, when you're dealing with Mongo-based um, APIs as well. I know I had this with Pars, um where you get field names wrong and it still saves it. <laughs> um, so, you know, you, you've set the you know, first name, you've forgotten the T or something, uh, and then you've you created the, the user and then you get the user back and the first name's empty and you're thinking, hold on a minute, why is that? And then you suddenly realize there's an extra field on the end called first name without the T because that's where you saved it. And so it's little things like that that unit tests can really help with. Just, you know, create a user with these parameters, uh, get the user back check all the parameters are the same as the first user I created. You know, all those little checks can can save you with, with that sort of stuff. Yeah, if you come from a relational database background too, that, that'll really throw you when yeah. something like that happens. <laughs> yeah. What in the world? Yeah, I mean, I love object databases. I do love the flexibility oh, yeah. of them. I mean, I if I had to go back to the days of, oh, I need to add a new field, okay, I've got to go into the data. I've got to, you know, I might have to connect remotely to the server and go into SQL and add the new field. And oh my God, I mean, I hated all that. Um, so I do love that stuff, but it does let you slip up, you know, from time to time, which is uh, which is quite interesting. Okay, next on our list is uh, something Adam Armstrong was asking about: background services, significant location change, and how to use that to um, allow your app to do updates. So I've I've used this. Uh, I'm trying to think how many times I've used this. I've only used it a few times, but I used it for an app um, that I actually did for a network. It was for a mobile phone network, and it was one of these classic apps that we've all done where you build this thing. Uh, it goes through testing, it gets tested internally, it gets used. And then due to some political change within the company, it never gets released. Um, and in this case, what happened is this network got bought by another network. Um, and then everything sort of the, the sort of project team fell apart. Um, but it was essentially an app that was sort of recreating a feature of iOS. I think it was iOS 7. Remember the, um, the you know, the frequent locations feature? I think that was iOS 7 that they added. Um, you know, where in the location services, you can go in and see your recent locations and it will sort of tell you the most popular locations you've been to recently. So if you're going to work all the time, it would have that as the top item and so on. Yeah, I think that was seven. Yeah, so that, that I wasn't tapping into that. So this was an app independent of that because it was on Android and iOS. But basically what it was doing is the concept was was um, the network wanted to do a sort of no-holes-barred type analysis of performance of their network compared to others. And the way they were doing it is, okay, you install this app, and then the app is, you need to give it permission. It's going to explain what it's doing. But effectively, it's tracking your favorite locations. And then at the end of a week, uh, it will have these data points to say, we know your favorite locations. So your top three locations are work, home, and maybe somewhere else, uh, maybe sports club or something. And then it will do a link to an API to get data speeds. And it was using the Ookla service, you know, the speed test service. So it would. Um, they had an API cut. They had a license to use that into into that API. So it would call back these data speeds, and then it would give you an analysis and say, if you used our network, these are the data speeds you would get in these locations, the most popular locations you're in. And they didn't mind the fact that it could mean, well, okay, your current network could be faster. It was just a statement. It was just saying these are the facts, you know, and you could make your decision. And if you if they weren't faster, because it could do the comparison with O2 as well, uh, or you know whatever it was, um, I think it was three that I did it for originally. Uh, I think O2 then bought three or BT bought three, something like that. But anyway, it would do the comparison with the different networks and it would say, you know, which one was faster. Um, And that was using, so for that, I use significant location as the key sort of change there. Um, On iOS anyway, with Android, I just use the normal location services. But on iOS, I was using significant location change, which if you're not familiar with it, if anyone's not familiar with it, basically it's using cell tower information. So what it will do is, um, you know, your location changes because of a cell tower change that triggers the significant location change uh, event. Your app is called um, and that code, that event is called in the app like background fetch and that piece of code can now do something so it could get your location. So obviously it's not doing geolocation constantly in the background. It's only being triggered when there's a significant location change, which is that cell tower change. Um, and that worked really well. Um, didn't really impact on power. Um, obviously didn't fire all the time because, you know, if you're, if you've ever used background location and you've had the sensitivity a bit high, you know, you can literally be sitting there and watching these alerts firing constantly because it's just moving the phone, uh, is literally just watch your battery drain. Exactly. So this is this, I mean, I, and, and, you know, annoyingly with these sort of things, you have to sort of sometimes test these things for real. So I would have to sort of drive down the road or whatever and see it change. Um, but it was working great and it also worked, 
It was also interesting because it worked when the app was rebooted. So the moment the app was rebooted, significant location change was one of the first events that fires up again. Um, so, 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 I mean, when the phone is rebooted, yeah. So if, if your phone ran out of power and the phone was dead and then you charged it back up again, restarted the phone, literally, because I could see these in the logs, you know, literally within 30 seconds of the phone restarting, significant location change would kick in and I would see my code running that would actually bring up the console to say, you know, new location, current location obtained or whatever. Um, so it's it's fairly simple to implement. The only obvious issue is the disparity between that and Android. So with Android, you have to use location services, but maybe with a, with a larger um, threshold in terms of distance uh, to trigger the event change. Um, but yeah, it worked really well. I don't know if you've ever used it. Uh, I, I haven't used it a lot, but I, I know too that there's some issues I know with iOS with when things go in the background after, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes, sometimes they can die off. And so I know there's different types of app. You can tell when you're building your app, you can tell, tell it what kind of app, like a voice over IP app is going to be able to do different things than another app. Uh, for one, there's, I mean, I think you can use like call kit and you can do like special push notifications that get high priority. Cause you want, if someone's calling you a voice over IP, you want, you want it to be able to get that push notification. So even if yeah. it's been a day in the background or, I mean, it'll bring it back up kind of thing. So sometimes to get around some of that stuff, I know people have done timers and some other things, but um, you have to be aware of that when, when, when your app is going in the background. Yeah, exactly. And I, iOS. I, exactly. And Apple do give you quite a few, um, you know, ways of getting around that in terms of background fetch and other things that you can do. Um, you know, I, I did write, I did some tests a while ago because I remember there was some comments years ago about the background, background GPS and background location stuff in iOS being shut down. And I managed to write an app where by adjusting some settings and adjusting sensitivity and putting the right stuff in the TI app XML, I had it going for like 30 minutes and still doing location stuff in the background. You know, so you can get it to work. But obviously, there's differences between iOS and Android and making sure that parity is the same. But the interesting thing is, you know, iOS give you these methods and Apple give you these methods of doing it. But the workaround sometimes can be quite cheeky. I remember seeing the, the story about Facebook. Um, you used to be able to go into the battery settings of iOS 10 and look at the usage. And it would say, you know, Facebook was you know, two hours on screen and six hours in the background. You're thinking, what? And then you tap it to get the detail and it would say audio. And it turned out that they were using a silent track. They were using one of these silent audio streams <laughs> to keep the multitasking going so it could run in the background. Um, and there's a few apps that wow. I've seen that are doing stuff like that. It's quite cheeky. Um, you know, they get away with it because they can claim for some reason they need background audio or streaming audio or whatever. Um, <laughs> but, you know, just be aware, obviously, anyone that's doing that sort of stuff, you can get yourselves into some hot water if you're not careful. Yeah. <laughs> so... The other couple of things I wanted to talk about before we finished was um, there was one one thing that's been a long-standing thing I've seen um, come up in TI Slack a few times to do with updating apps, and the other one is to do with cross-platform uh, native versus hybrid, which was again the subject that came up with someone trying to, to work on an app that was a hybrid app. Um, so the first one is keeping apps up to date with the latest SDKs. I don't know about you, but I've seen this a few times where, and I've, I've you know like everyone, we've been in this situation where you have an app that you're trying to update that hasn't been, you know, worked on for a year or two. And in the year or two, we've had, you know, a new version of iOS, possibly a new version of Android, possibly several SDK updates for Titanium, um, including ones that might be significant, like the 64-bit change um, for iOS or the 64-bit change uh, or the, um, what was it, the uh, the Java change, the Java uh, V8, the V8 change for Android. Right. Uh, yeah. So where, where modules need to be rewritten and everything or rebuilt. Um, and so those can be significant, you know, issues. And I don't know what you do. How do you deal with it with clients or with your apps where, you know, you build an app, the app's in the app store, you've got new modules, you've got new SDKs, you've got new operating systems coming out. How do you manage that? Is it ad hoc or is there some sort of maintenance plan? I mean, I love it. Um, comes down to the client, but I definitely recommend keeping up with the latest SDKs. Uh, so it's better, I think, in to go up um, for like minor updates. And if there's a major update to the SDK, 
to do it then as opposed to waiting a year and a half because you want to add a feature and then realizing you have to go back and try and figure out all the things that have changed yeah. um, with the SDK. So yet definitely keeping up with it is my recommended approach. Now, I mean, that's balance of who your team, how much money, um, all that kind of stuff. But the advantages of, of keeping it up if you can are going to be great. Yeah, I mean, it's like... Um... You know, if you want to get into the sort of commercial side of things, it's a it's a it's a a sales opportunity for developers to have this sort of thing in their diary. Um, you know, you've built the app, you've you've done the app for the client, the app's been published. It's almost now, you know, unless you're doing continual work for that client, which you know, I don't know about other people, but I tend to do updates for people. But you know, there, there isn't necessarily a full on retainer going on for a year. You know, I've I've get a piece of project work to build an app. The app's published. I might not hear from that client for for months. Um, you know, because they're using the app, they're getting some traction, they want to see what the feedback is, and then they might come back and say they need some updates or not. Um, so it's a case of almost having that schedule in mind. So, you know, I've done the app, the app is out there, uh, iOS 11 is coming out, there's going to be changes in iOS, there might be permission changes, there might be breaking changes. And almost having that sales process kick in where you can sort of email these clients and contact these clients that you've built stuff for saying, you know, it might be a good opportunity to look at, you know, refreshing this for the latest SDK and refreshing it with a, you know, latest iOS SDK build um, to make sure that there's no issues. Um, it's obviously difficult to anticipate what those issues could be if there are some. Um, you know, tend to be things like permissions and things. Obviously, the six iOS 6 to 7 was a big one because of the visual changes. Um, there's been some permission things from 6 to 7, I think, and 7 to 8 as well, especially around um, push and the way that's done. So there's some different conditional code you have to sort of drop into uh, two apps depending on what version you're targeting. But it's a good opportunity for you know to go back to those clients, to follow up, to see how they got on, get some feedback. It could be one of those opportunities where suddenly they go, oh, yeah, you know, we've got some updates we want to do. And then you can tie those, those changes and, and updates into that. Um, it is... You know, I would hate to be in a situation now where, you know, you're you're dealing with a client that's working with like, you know, Titanium three SDK or four, and they <laughs> and they need some changes, and you're trying to suddenly get stuff working that could be completely broken. Um, that would be incredibly frustrating. And also, I mean, if I ever take on projects now that have been done by other people, one of the first thing I ask is, is, is it alloy? Because I just can't cope with looking at a non-alloy project now with all the JavaScript everywhere. Um, so that's also a big thing. Um, and, and again, looking at with alloy projects, looking at the way they're architected, you know, there's one that I'm working with at the moment where they're not using uh, models and collections um, with sort of up-to-date ways of doing things. So one of the things we're trying to do is get that updated to use that better process so that it's it's much easier to handle the data and manage the data um, and just making it easy going forward. And it's always difficult with clients because it's like anything to do with maintenance or anything to do with um, that the user doesn't necessarily notice the difference is always a hard sell. You know, is, that is. yeah, is this going to be, if you can always say it's going to be faster, great, that's great, it's going to be faster, love it. Um, but otherwise, it's like, I, I guess the way I try to frame it is, okay, you know, this is going to be a bit of an investment to do this, but it's going to make future updates much easier. You know, it's the updates are going to get quicker and easier down the line because we don't have to, to go through the pain each time of what we're doing now. Um, but it is tricky because you're basically saying it's like repairing something in your house. You know, basically this worked. Uh, it's not working. I'm having to pay money. And then it's working again. It's not faster. It's not bigger yeah. or better. It's to give me the same as it did before, but it's just cost me a load of money. Um, but the argument... Yeah, we could, could almost be, do a whole episode on technical debt of... Exa yeah, exactly. Being almost the hardest sell, but... But the argument will be, um, you know, by, by, by me doing this piece of work, I'm laying the groundwork to make maintenance or support easier going forward, um, which has got to be a good thing. Yeah, you're investing in your app. Exactly. Um, the second thing was talking about cross-platform native versus hybrid. And um, I, I brought this one in because I've had a couple of calls this week about um, native apps or cross-platform apps. And, the, and someone said, oh, yeah, we're after a hybrid app. And I was like, oh, okay. And I guess the issue with this is sometimes to do with terminology and people understanding what, what things mean. And everyone has a different term, you know, different understanding sometimes of what native means. Um, so you'll, the purists will say, you know, a native app is something written in Swift, something written in uh, Objective-C um, or something written in Java or whatever. You know, it's written in the underlying SDK directly using their tools directly from Apple and, and Google. 
Um, some people will say that a native app is something that's in the app store. And that's usually a user would say that, you know, oh, it's a native app. Why is it a native app? Because I downloaded it from the iOS app store. Um, but that <laughs> obviously could be a, a wrapped hybrid app. And some will say a native app is, you know, a native user interface. So as far as the user is concerned, they're using real native controls. The background logic is something else, which is pretty much where Titanium sits, where React Native, Native Script, they all sit in that sort of space. You're using a native UI, some of the business logic or the business logic is in JavaScript or native code or whatever as modules. Um, but basically, you know, it's a native UE app. Um, and that's pretty much where I sit with it and how I describe it to people. And so this, the, in the case of the call I had, the, the person didn't really, under, they thought hybrid just meant cross-platform. They didn't, they weren't saying hybrid as in they wanted a web app wrapped. They just thought that that was the, work, the correct terminology for cross-platform. But what? But I, I brought this up as well because I saw some stuff in the Slack about somebody that was struggling with an app that they were building, which was using Fire Event, you know, app dot, uh, ti.app.fireevent and ad event listener for global app events to do with web views because basically they were trying to to update an old Titanium app that was a web app uh, wrapped in a native wrapper. Uh. Um, and it's always difficult because I, I know as a developer the frustration of you're trying to get something done. You know, you're trying to get something working. You hit a problem. You're trying to hack around it. You're just trying to keep a client happy or solve a bug or a crash or whatever. Um, stop the bad reviews coming in or whatever you're trying to do. And, and you know, you've got a few hours or a couple of days to get this stuff done. And then you've got some smart ass like me going back saying, oh, you really shouldn't be doing that. You should be redeveloping it as a native app. It's not necessarily helpful. I get that. Um, but it is... It's it's again. It's, it's still true. <laughs> it's still true, and it's still part of what we've just been talking about with maintenance. It's still yeah. trying to to get this this app in a state that's much easier to manage going forward. And <clears throat> you know, I don't hate hybrid apps. I don't hate that concept of a web app because if I did, I'd be hating the App Store. I'd be hating uh, iTunes. I'd be hating you know iTunes U and a lot of apps that are built into iOS that are hybrid effectively. Um, but they're hybrid in a way that is much more um, focused on how they're done. You know, if you look at the App Store, it's got a native tab group. Uh, it's got native alerts that come up. It's got native setting screens and all that sort of stuff that happens. It just so happens that their layouts are HTML. You know, it's a web-based layout because that's the easiest way to get that layout for them. Uh, that sort of stuff, I don't mind. I've done that before myself. Um it's and I think it's it, it's that thing with you know using web interfaces and apps where it's absolutely necessary and it's going to give you better performance or uh, better flexibility than it would normally is definitely fine with me. Uh, but I, I would I would really avoid now going down that hole. I'm just going to create a, a web view wrapper and do everything in HTML because I just to me that I just think you just just do a mobile web app. There's just no point you doing a native app in the app store if that's the case. Yeah, because it. Like you said, with Firevan and some other things, there's there's protections in place to protect your app um, from, like, if there was a web app that uh, could access easily access things outside of the web view, that would be a problem. Yeah. So it, it it's intentionally difficult, and there's certain ways that you have to be able to interact with a web view. Yeah, I tend to only have a web view or something like that if it's absolutely necessary the content has to be on this external site and usually i'm hoping there's not a whole lot of interaction with it at all because yeah it can it can make your life difficult and maintaining like you're talking about upgrading sdks going to new um yeah. versions of ios or android um people tout the hybrid as because it's lower maintainability and it's easier to get up and running maybe, but it's not at your long-term you're looking at it. Um, there are things, there are differences between browser, the browser engines in phones and they do change mm. sometimes between OS um, that can affect if you're doing, trying to do complex things like trying to use native features from a hybrid app that can, it can change things. And it's not just as easy as creating a, a web page and sticking in an app. Yeah, and I've, you know, I'm yet to be, I have seen some good hybrid apps. Like I say, where apps are done in a way that uses it sparingly, like the App Store, it works because the, the experience you're getting of things sliding in and sub windows and things is still a native experience. So it doesn't really, there's nothing jarring about that. It sort of makes sense. It's when you get these apps that try and recreate all this stuff. They're trying to recreate the slide in sub view. They're trying to recreate buttons. Um, you know, they're trying to recreate the way that iOS 
interfaces work and you just sort of subtly realize that this isn't right you know there's a font's not right or the layout's not right or just the way it's clicking isn't right uh, i've yet to see and i'd love to be proved wrong i've yet to see an app that can do that sort of stuff that's all web-based that's running in a native shell on a, on an iphone that would not make me immediately go this is a web app you know I'd I'd love to be immediately proved wrong. Um, It tends to be, I mean, I think when you've got custom layouts and custom looks of apps, then I think you get away with it more because you're not trying to emulate something, but it's the sort of uncanny valley thing. You know, you're trying to copy the navigation window and the way that it slides in, but you just haven't got it right, whether it's the speed or just the way it animates or whatever. And it's one of those things that we use, you know, subconsciously, we don't even click. Um, But as soon as you use something that isn't right, it's like, well, they've changed that animation speed or you know, there's something not right there. This doesn't perform. And it's it's crazy how something as as simple as a smoother animation or a faster animation can make an app feel snappier. You know, it's as silly right. as that. Someone can think, oh, okay, this feels really fast. But it goes back to what we were talking about last week. It was It's about trying to use as many native components as you can because for me, the native components are free. They work. You know, tab group works. Navigation window works. It's got all of that stuff built into it to make it work. Why would you try and recreate that when you can just use what's in the box? If you get to the point where you have to customize it or change it or replace it because of a specific thing, then that's different. Um, but but nine times out of ten, I can still use a tab group and do what I need to do. Even you know, even those like big buttons that people have in apps that sort of sit over the middle tab, you can still do that because you can just add that as a view over the top of the tab. You, you don't have to write a full tab group. Um, I did a little add-on widget or module that. Um, you couldn't do custom fonts in tab groups in iOS. Um, so this was one that you could you could add to the existing tab group. And all it did is all your tabs would have no text. Uh, you'd have, you know, null text. And then you would just invoke this add-on with your labels. And that would just create a, a sort of view on top. Um, and I could probably do that as a custom tag that would be seamless. Um, but it's still using the tab group. The tab group's still there. Right. You know? I'm not trying you to... You can re- even do things like, you know, like with a... The tab group, if you're doing, like, you can use icon font instead of images. Yes, if yes. If you really want to. Yes. Because you can just save it as an image, right, and cache it. Yep. So it only happens once. Yep. And that can be your image for there as opposed to, I mean, there's all a lot of the excuses for you yeah, creating a custom one are gone. Exactly. There's always, uh, my my view is I want to write as little code as possible <laughs> to get something working. Right. So So if I can... And I hate the word hack in this case, but if I can hack around it to create a little add-on or something that just does what I need to do, but I don't have to go and recreate and, and reinvent the wheel, then I'll do that because that's that's going to get me the first version of that that is going to, to me, be acceptable. Now, the client could look at it or the designer could look at it and go, oh, it doesn't quite look right like this or like this. Is there any way around it? And typically, like we said last week, I'll say, yeah, I could make it work like that. I'd have to do this and this and this, and I may have to rewrite this. And here's the implications of that. You know, it could cause some problems. I'll try and sell. <coughs> excuse me. I'll try and sell the native route because it's going to give them a better app. It will, and it, the user experience will be what typical user expects. And like, even when you're talking about like hybrid, you don't have to be a developer to open up an app and just know that something's wrong. It, things aren't where you expect them to be. They're not behaving how you expect. But whether yeah. you're with a hybrid or native, if you start messing with what the user kind of in general expects for Android or expects for iOS, it's not going to be intuitive and you're either going to lose users or just frustrate them if they can't easily figure out how to do what they want to do. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, uh, the little funny story about the app I did for the mobile phone network, when they first saw um, <laughs> when they first saw the prototype, I think I'd knocked up something like proto.io. Um, the the critique came back from the guy who'd sort of got me into the project was that the the slide-ins for the sub-windows were, were going the wrong way and could we reverse it? So his, I'd say it was it was a normal iOS app. You know, when you when you tap a, when you tap a, a detail screen, typically your detail screen slides in from the right, doesn't it? It sort of comes across and then you have the back button and then you click it and it slides back. Um, he is, his view was, no, it doesn't make sense. It needs to slide in from the left. <laughs> And it, and I, I just had to, you know, I had to just refer him back to all these different apps and just go, this is, I know you may think that that's correct. It's a bit like uh, people that have the mouse scrolling on Mac OS going different ways. You know, you have oh, the initial, yeah. The, the, yeah, now I'm, I'm an old school. I have it going the old school way. Um, I, maybe I should switch at some point, but I've never had that problem of going from tablet to, to the mouse. 
in terms because I think that's why they did it because there's this you scroll differently on a tablet or on a phone than you do on a on a Mac on a scroll wheel or a magic mouse. So yeah, I'll have my mouse do one way and my touchscreen do it different so that it doesn't throw me. Exactly. And so it's always throws me when I I use someone else's machine or something or one of these machines in the shop um and you sort of go what the hell's going on that's not scrolling and you realize you're doing it the wrong way. Um so it was like that except that he his opinion was it was going the wrong way and I was basically trying to argue the point that every, pretty much every single other person in the world wants it to go the other way and they're going to be really freaked out if it doesn't and uh so I managed to convince them. But it's yeah, silly silly little things like that. I mean that would have been a very weird app to use because and I've used apps to be honest I have used apps where things have scrolled in different ways and you think oh that's that's odd it's a bit like if you've ever done a tab group or navigation window and turned animate off it's really weird because oh, I don't know you, if I've you, done that yeah <laughs> if, you, if you just turn the animation things off, just appear yeah so it's really odd because you know that that sort of concept and logic of having the arrow seems more natural when it's animated so when you've you click it and then you've got the back button with the arrow going to the left. It sort of makes sense that when you click, you're going back in that direction. You know, things slides back the correct way. Um, but when you turn that off and you just press it and it instantly appears and then you hit back and it instantly disappears. It's really weird. It's like, oh, and it's something that I saw in an app recently that someone was helping me with. And I was like, oh, that doesn't look, I don't like that. That's horrid. <laughs> that just doesn't feel right, you know, in terms of an iOS app. Android obviously is different. You click an ad, usually, I know they've introduced that, that more and more apps are introducing the sort of back button slide effect. Um, but, you know, there is that, you click on something, it pops up with a new window, you click return and it disappears. It, it, but it makes more sense on Android because that's how other stuff works. Yeah, you have to know your platform. But yeah, education is part of a developer's job as well. I mean, you have to be able to articulate to the client, other developers, uh, management, what you really need to do and what the requirements are and what the user expectation is for the different platforms yeah. because it can make a difference. I think it's important because, um, like you say, it is our job as the developer to try and educate people. Obviously, there are cases where you can't win, um, and I've had those sort of cases, plenty of them, where you just, you know, you're, you're fighting an uphill battle trying to get convinced someone to, to do otherwise uh but there's been plenty of, of times as well where i've said that is just you know i've literally said that is a terrible idea we should not be doing that um because of and because we shouldn't be doing that because of this and trying to explain it and it's interesting because and i mentioned this i think last time um you know those sorts of work compromises can hit you further down the line you know if, if you've been uh, convinced by a client or a designer that you have to go and develop a custom tab group or you have to develop your own navigation stack and animations and everything else as your app gets bigger and more complicated and if those those views get more complicated suddenly further down the line you're getting someone saying the app's running really slowly or we've got these performance issues or we're not happy about the way this sort of animation's jerking in can you fix that and you've sort of backed yourself into this corner now of trying to continually hack around a hack that you've already done whereas you know, if you go down that route of saying, um, you know, we should be using the native components and this is why, you can't really get any faster than that because you're using those free components that you're getting within the operating system. Um, and that's got to be a good thing in terms of, you know, keeping the performance of the app up and making sure that you don't get in trouble later. And keeping the end user happy too. Exactly. Keep your readings up for an app, public app. Exactly. That's probably a good time to finish. Sounds good. So uh, I will, what's, what's the time there now? It is 6.49 here. Breakfast and a full day ahead of you. <laughs> well, have a good day. All right. And uh, we'll catch up with you next time. Thanks for listening, everyone.